This is an installation of the Ferris Center Events podcast series brought to you by the Ferris Center for Eastern Mediterranean Studies at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. So thank you all, all for coming. This is, we're simply here to have a conversation about food. Food is a very serious subject. My first experience of such a conversation was in Oxford, where there, at my college in St. Anthony's, there was the beginning of the Oxford Food Symposium. And everybody thought it was a joke when, when they started. And it's been going for 30 years. It was started by, uh, by, by Theodore Zeldin and uh, uh, Alan Davidson and lots of uh, very famous food critics and cooks go there, and some of you, of course, are here. So, we are starting, in a, in a way, something inspired by, 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 by that, which is going to be a Fletcher Food Symposium. And we're, in a way, trying to discover what's special about a Fletcher Food Symposium. We're a school of international affairs. We care about history, identity, conflict resolution, uh, uh, culinary diplomacy, we, we care about a lot of things which are different from other food symposiums in, in, in Cambridge or in, in Boston. Like at Harvard, there's a, there's a concentration on technology and agriculture. At EU, it's, it's gastronomy. At Tufts, it's food security. So, that, so we're, we're starting a, 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 different, a different type of conversation. And we're delighted to do it. I mean, the Farris Center. Uh, is delighted to do it with, in collaboration with the uh, Fletcher Culinary Diplomacy Group, which is headed by Anna Ackerman. Uh, I've, and I've, Maggie Kellogg. And Maggie. She's not here tonight. She's not here. Oh, okay. So uh, by Anna Ackerman and, and Maggie Kellogg. And uh, I first heard about it from, from, from Professor Alan Hendrickson, who also told me that it came up in conversation in one of his classes, and the student uh, at the time, uh, Sam, Sam Ch uh said he was wanted to write a paper, and the paper was published. And now Sam is doing a PhD on the subject, and it's it's part of the beginning of setting in a new, if like a, a new field of of, of study. So I'm uh, very pleased that Anna Anna is here. Uh, Sam Chapasokol cannot, could not join us. Uh, Professor Wardi is joining us at some stage. Professor Wardi is also involved in the whole theme of this semester at the Faris Center, which which is about the changing order in the region, how cosmopolitanism and nationalism changes. <coughs> Uh, with, with time and how it causes movement of population, and there are constants like food and music and literature that give us that tell us a lot about the character and the culture and the, and even the politics of, of, of the region. So we, and we are extremely lucky to have this amazing panel. I will just introduce the names. I want and I let them tell the story. Uh, and 
So, so uh, well, missing from the panel is Nancy Hannah Jenkins, who couldn't make it because her her grandson has a football match. Nawal Nasrallah was coming with probably half a ton of biryani <laughs> afterwards. And because of the snow, she couldn't get, she's coming from, uh, from Salem, so she couldn't come. So tomorrow, there's lots of leftover biryani in Salem. Suhair and Raj Mumayez are probably the first people I spoke to about this, this idea. And my first introduction to, to, uh, to them was through their uh, food truck Shahrazad. Uh, they, are, they are both architects and an architect and a town planner, and their hobby is to teach us about about Maria Speck is, is here uh, of uh, ancient grains. You, you, you all know, know about her, her book. My dear wife, Claude Shahadi, um, who's responsible for some of my weight. Sani Abu Jubain was uh, owner of Casablanca, and he knows the history of Mediterranean food in the, in, in the region. He's, al he's almost, he almost represents it. Anna Sorkin, we're so happy with, with you too. You've all known about Oleana and Sama and the new fusion cuisine of Sofra and so And we even have uh, our food historian and uh, and uh, uh, social norms. <laughs> I will, um, I will, before I pass on to, 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 to Anna, I just want to say also that here at Fletcher, we live in the middle of communities all around us that are from the Eastern Mediterranean. There are Armenians in Watertown, there are Greeks in Lowell and other, other areas, there are Albanians, there are Turks. Syrians, Lebanese, Israelis, Palestinians. They, there's a very heavy history involved, very traumatic history involved in why they're here and, uh, and all that. But they all share the same food and the same music. And it's, it's one of the themes that is interesting to explore when we talk about food. And, uh, so, uh, Thank you everyone for coming out tonight. I am going to set the table for this conversation. Um, and so that you aren't too anxious, there will be food after. And we will be likely wrapping up this conversation at about 7.15. Um, and the food is sponsored by Shahrazad Food Truck and Baraka Cafe and Asetuna. And we'll also have wines from the region. So culinary diplomacy is a very ancient uh, form of diplomacy. 
give me good cooks, and I shall bring you good treaties. 1814. <laughs> the definition that we'll be using tonight of culinary diplomacy is the use of food and cuisine as instruments to create cross-cultural understanding in the hope of improving interactions and cooperation. And this definition was actually coined by our alum, Sam Chapel Sokol, uh, with the help of Alan Henriksen. As you can see, there are lots of terms that sound very similar. Uh, Gastro-diplomacy is actually nation branding through food. Food diplomacy is public diplomacy through food aid. And there are some terms that sound very similar, diplomatic astronomy and gastronomic diplomacy. Uh, I was talking with Sam yesterday on the phone, and he said that Alan Henriksen really tried to persuade him against using gastro because he just didn't like the sound of it. <laughs> so culinary diplomacy it is. There are three pillars of culinary diplomacy. The first is track one, or official track, government to government. Uh, and some examples of this are through state dinners, where food is one way of promoting a certain uh, aspect of a culture through embassy dining, and also through the Club des Chefs des Chefs, which is um, started by the US State Department and a way for chefs from all around the world to meet and to be uh, really ambassadors for their country. Second is public. Uh, this is government to a foreign public. So for example, the Thai kitchen of the world. Um, chances are, if you're living in the United States, you don't live far from a Thai restaurant. And this was part of a diplomatic program that was um, promoted by Thailand. Other countries have followed suit. There's Korean kimchi diplomacy and the American diplomatic culinary partnership. Finally, there is citizen-to-citizen -citizen culinary diplomacy. And this it can be seen in examples like Conflict Kitchen, which you may have heard of. It's the startup in Pittsburgh that cooks cuisine from any country that the US is in conflict with, and also hands up flyers to describe what that conflict is about, and to try to really teach the public through the experience of eating their food. Boundless Kitchen is another example just underway in Denmark. It is a startup of a chef, and um, it's in response to the policy in Denmark, which it's very anti-immigrant. Uh, Boundless Kitchen brings in refugees from the area of Abeltoft, Denmark, to cook for the community, and it's a giant community kitchen. Seems to be very successful so far. And third is um, International Alert Recipes for Peace. Um, culinary diplomacy can be found in ancient Greece. Aristotle is quoted for having said that food is um, essential to diplomacy because it brings together people just in the way a family comes together over a meal. Of course, culinary uh, or food does not always bring people together. There are culinary rifts. 
for example, the origin of certain foods like baklava has been disputed again and again. And I hope that we can discuss this as well. <laughs> uh, one question that I hope that we can bring up as a group is how do you feel that your work connects to the concept of culinary diplomacy? And I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Anna. We, uh, when you, when you mentioned uh, uh, all these in initiatives, there we, we are also missing uh, uh, one of the, the, the people who was very eager to come. Her name is Teresa Shaheen from Harvard, and she heads an NGO that does food trucks with refugees in, in the region. That's other lots of things to, 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 to look up and. I won't say that one day it, there will be uh, someone talking about food and politics and about how they, 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 the politics of poisoning, uh, assassination. I can see Tarek shaking his head. It's a compelling idea. So uh, let's open it up. I'll, Love, sorry to start, if you don't mind, with a few minutes. Just tell us some of the background to Mediterranean food in in, in, um, in Boston. And because you've been here since the 1960s, you had. Um, <coughs> yes, I came to this country from. Uh, I was born in Palestine, but I grew up in Damascus, Syria. Nobody had heard of things like yogurt, olive oil. Uh, in Waterville, they knew the Syrian bread. Well, now it's changed to pita bread for some reason, but it's the same bread. Um, uh, and and um, uh, moved to the Boston area in 1970. And we had here a little bit of places that served Middle Eastern food. And, and those were, you know, there were a couple of, there were a few Lebanese restaurants in the South End where the South End used to be a, a, a big landing place for, uh, for people that immigrated from, from Lebanon. But they really, the same as the Lebanese, well, in, in Waterville, the, these, these folks came, or their, their ancestries came from what would, from Syria, but they came from the mountains of Lebanon, so they're really, they're, they were Lebanese before the, the country of Lebanon in the in the modern sense, in the 20th century. So so anyway, we so and 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 those those were popular places, but that was it. And then we began to find olive oil, yogurt. I'm a big fan of Boston, so I love the Armenian community because they provided me with Boston. Um, uh, I was involved with the Casablanca from 1970 when it was primarily a bar and served a little lunch. And, and, uh, uh, 
So in, in 1989, 1990, uh, the building where Casablanca restaurant existed, <coughs> was going through a massive renovation. And uh, I, so all of our leases had, had, had ended and then we, some of us came back uh, to start our businesses. So I was reinventing Casablanca. So Casablanca the name comes from a, a relationship between the bar or the club and the movie. It's about the love affair. It has nothing to do with the city of Casablanca in, in Morocco, or with me being a being a Middle Easterner, and so so. But we kind of package, and my my opening chef who didn't last very long, thank God. <laughs> but I, um, 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 he was he was a it was an Italian American, so so he he did spaghetti, he did some pasta, so so I started using the word Mediterranean to kind of promote the restaurant. Around that same time, there was an organization, there still is an organization here in the Boston area called, named Old Ways, uh, Old Ways Foundation, Old Ways Preservation, Preservation and Trust. And they, uh, Nancy Harmon Jenkins was, was involved with it heavily. Uh, the late Dan Gifford, a friend of ours, was involved with it. They were, and, and, they were, that foundation was receiving some funding money to promote the Mediterranean diet, which we did not have. But the only diet we had was the U.S., the FDA diet, which was done probably in, 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 the, in the God knows how long ago, and it was just not, not appropriate at all. Uh, always devised, did some research and devised the, the, uh, the, 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 the they did the uh, Mediterranean food diet, which on top was olive oil. And always was actually getting some money from olive oil, not producers, but from, from organization in Europe uh, that, that would, uh, would give always some money to kind of promote the diet the recipes, the regions, the different olive oils and stuff. So all of us, so all of a sudden, it, it was really in the early 90s that we went, I went from Middle Eastern to the beginning of this Mediterranean list that we all, all over the world were really enjoy, enjoying a very successful and rightful uh, place in, 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 on our tables and in our diet. So that's kind of my, uh, and Anna comes into the picture through that, right? Anna, you came, that's how you came to the picture. Yeah. So, so this guy hired me, a <laughs> Norwegian girl from Seattle, um, <laughs> who uh, spent a little bit of time in the, in the Mediterranean, but in the central part of the Mediterranean, south of France and Italy and a little bit in Spain, but um, I didn't know I'd worked with a Tunisian chef before I met Sari, so I knew a little bit about North African food. Um, and I, Sari's, your mission really was to sort of um, bridge the bar with the, the food and to uh, bring um, a different style of Mediterranean food that wasn't necessarily represented that well in Boston um, and after working for Sari for a few years and um, sort of slowly uh, changing the menu over time and um, broadening that sense of Mediterranean food, um, 
Sorry was having dinner with um, a woman from Turkey, from a small town in the southeast called Gaziantep. And um, uh, I think you probably had a couple cocktails or something like that no, that night. Because she said, oh, you should send your chef to study with me in Turkey. I'll teach her everything I know. Um, and Sari said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So after dinner, she came up and introduced herself, and her name was Eifer Hünsal. She's an amazing uh, journalist in Turkey. And she introduced herself, and she invited me to come study with her in Turkey. And I thought, wow, genies, flying carpets, and exotic spices. And I had no idea what I would, um, I was incredibly naive as far as um, uh, what I knew the Mediterranean as was what I had seen and what I had experienced. Um, and uh, I knew nothing about Turkey or the food. And I went, um, and she had organized a potluck for me. Um, it was arranged with 30 of her friends, and they each prepared a dish that was very um, true to them, very well-practiced, something that represented um, their, their region, their region in Turkey. Um, and I tasted all this food, and I, I was so excited, I, I couldn't sit down. I had never tasted anything like it in my life. And what I was discovering were these incredibly rich flavors, um, but nothing was heavy. And that, to me, was a revelation, because I had studied uh, cooking in France, and so you know, I was taught that if you want flavor, you just add a little more butter, a little more cream, um, and now it's add a little more bacon, and you know it's. Um, but in this in this part of the world, um, you know, for me, what set it apart was the use of spice, and not heavily um, spiced, like in Indian food or in Thai food, for that matter. But using spice in a Mediterranean way, but also. Um, other ingredients like um, it's lots of acidity from the yogurt, the pomegranate, molasses, spices like sumac, um, and they it was a, a different way of cooking that I describe to whenever I'm trying to describe it to my staff or teach them um, about sort of how we're seasoning things. It's it's more dimensional, so. If you think about uh, in, in Italy, you might have a plate of risotto with some white truffles on it. The truffles have umami in them. But where you get all your spices and your other dimensions is in the glass of wine that you're drinking with it in the area where you're having the white truffles and the risotto. And in the Eastern Mediterranean, they're doing all of that when they cook. And they're adding all of those dimensions. And so it's very uh, multi-dimensional, in my opinion. And so it just became an intrigue of mine and study, and uh, Sari was very supportive of um, the learning process, and I just kept going back and back, um, and I continue to go back for lots of inspiration. I, I'm by no means an, an expert um, on the cuisine, but every, every year I learn um, an astounding amount about something, some dish, somewhere that um, really intrigues me and drives um, uh, you know, one of the menus at the restaurants, and um, you know, we try to. Our mission, really, at the restaurants, are to to you know put this style of cuisine more into the mainstream. Um, and even though it's not authentic, um, it's very interpretive. It's very authentic to me and my experience and the way I 
uh, in my need to be creative as a chef, um, to try to really understand the flavors, um, really understand the rules as much as I can um, before I break them, before I make some sort of creative um, decision around them. So Thank you. Claude, bring us back to the region and the Mediterranean, your experience with Lebanese food and Well, I, I lived in London for most of my life, about 40 years, and during that time when I first arrived I, as a Lebanese, I had, I discovered that food was my actual garden disease. It was the way that I introduced myself to people and how I projected myself. It was easy. We make friends, come and eat something, they try this. I wrote wine leaves for the first time in my life. I spent about six hours doing this to just get a little bowl about this thing. But it was a learning curve and, um, and I found it, I, I learned about myself as well. And um, later also I found that food was a, a, a way of continuity. Because when I started having children and I raised them, it was important for me to give them uh, a flavor of what I knew, what I grew up with, without having to take them to Lebanon and put them there. And, and I think that also I realized how important it was for, you know, as part of my identity. And I started cooking workshops around 2006 with a friend of mine who's Italian. So again, we looked at each other's food and every time we came up with the same Conclusion. Oh yeah, we do something like this, but it's slightly different. So there's this big Mediterranean, um, almost like a, well, I didn't say fraternity, but I mean, it's, it, it brings people together, and it brings, and it comes together through, first because of the climate, so you have the same ingredients, the same produce, um, also because both Italy and Lebanon are very regional, so you have regional food, and also the other thing is the very important part, it's conviviality. And our, our way of life, the family structure, the communities are such that it is possible to carry on this. And when you're sharing food, you're sharing food ideas. And that's how food, I think, sort of develops as well in, um, in, in that way. Um, in Lebanon, we have two aspects. There's Beirut, which is quite cosmopolitan. Uh, by its history, by its recent history, etc., Beirut is exposed to a lot of change. And you have the rest of Lebanon, which isn't, which is very regional and quite divided. So if you look at Beirut today, um, after the Civil War, many experts returned, and they came back with new ideas, new ways of looking at, at food, and rediscovered their own heritage. So we had several trends that came out. One of them is for instance, uh, platforms for regional cooking, uh, associations that promote um, uh, traditional foods, associations that train women who are cooks to have micro-businesses, to help them sell their, their products. There are markets, there's, so there's quite a bit. There's the Food Heritage Foundation that works, there's Tauli, uh, Slow Food Beirut is quite busy uh, promoting all this. There's also new chefs and young chefs who revisit the tradition 
And so you have a lot of exciting uh, new um, dishes that come out which are their vision of, of traditional cuisine. And then you have, um, and that's very important because of the um, migrant workers and the refugees. There's a new section now and they have a platform and there are restaurants uh, like a place called Macan, I don't know if people have been there, uh, where they have every day a different menu which is based on a different country. So you have Sri Lankan food, you have uh, Filipino food, you have, there's lots of other Iraqi foods and, and businesses that started also a lot of Syrian restaurants uh, that we see now in Beirut. So, and that even in Beirut, which is cosmopolitan, you have, um, I would say there's still tradition. And one example, for instance, is um, before Ramadan, just on the day, sort of, people will go in, this is very much a Beiruti occupation. They go on a picnic on one particular stretch of that beach, and they take that picnic along, waiting for a sighting of the crescent. And they call this the Tibana Ramadan. Now, it's a family thing, they all go together, and they take one of their main dishes is, a, is something called mufetta'a, which is a rice cooked in tahini and sugar, and it's a rice pudding, which is beautiful, but you only find it this time of year, and you really need to know where to find it. So it, it, it represents a, a culture of the Muslims in Beirut. Now, if Beirut is, if we agree or we accept the fact that Beirut is a cosmopolitan, the rest of Lebanon is it's regional, it's divided, and it's happily divided. So what you find in the north, you will not find in the south. Um, I mean, and I will give you a few examples. For instance, if you cook kibbe, I don't know if you're familiar with kibbe. Kibbe in the north, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of meatloaf with crushed wheat. Um, in the north, they will use a little bit of pepper, maybe an onion. In the south, they will flavor it with cumin, herbs, lots of aromatics. Um, even the way they prepare it, the traditional way of pounding it, now that everyone uses Maginix, but before that, they used to have a great big, in the north, a great big wooden um, stern mortar, and a big wood, uh, stone pestle, and a big wooden mortar, and so they would beat this, and on, I remember on Sundays as a kid, I used to hear that sound across the village that where my grandparents lived, I mean, it's quite strong, lost, but it, it, they still make it. In the south, they beat it on a, on a marble slab with a different type of um, mortar. So, I mean, the, uh, the other thing also, so the, these are the sort of differences that you, you will find. Also, the other thing is in the north, they eat goat's meat. In the south, they eat sheep. Uh, the other thing that, maybe the things that would link regions together is frugality. Um, if you're, the higher up you go, the more frugal the meal is, and the simpler it is, sometimes they make a dish with only three ingredients, but it's delicious, it's, it's very good. Olive oil is across the country, and, um, and the other thing that's important is, to all of them is uh, no waste. Everything, every part of the animal that's butchered is used. So the head, the feet, the intestines, the tripe, the liver, everything gets used. Uh, if you use a plant, every part is separated. So if you're using the leaves to roll something, you can use the stalks to make something else with it. 
um, foraging. So you will still find people who go out into the fields looking for wild uh, plants. And, and, and that's coming in a big way, big time. Um, um, there are also other differences. And, and very important one is the religious divide. So every food that we eat is, is attached or is linked to the religious calendar. So you have foods that are associated with Ramadan, you have foods that are associated with Christmas, you have foods that are associated with Easter, and again, it's different if you're Catholic um, or if you're Orthodox. And, and I think all of these make up um, I mean, give a very interesting idea of Lebanon's cultural identity. But there's definitely an, uh, an interest, an outgoing interest. In the same village, you may have the people who cook um, the you know, different foods because they belong to different um, uh, religions. Um, I was told not to be too long, so I have to be very but yes, and also there are differences. Um, for instance, there are things that you find in families. Um, uh, if you have a grandmother who's from Turkey or Greece or Albania, or and, and you will always have a recipe that has been handed down that stays there. The, the name, if you look you, carefully, you will find the names have been changed. It's been mispronounced. Some of the ingredients are different, but it makes sense, and, and, and you will know where it's coming from and you can retrace the steps. So, um, that's it for me, really. Um, so, in the food identity in Lebanon is diverse. It's a bit like the landscape. Um, and, um, and it's good. <laughs> <laughs> so, I bet it's the first time that someone sharing a meeting says, uh, speaker, thank you, Dalvin. <laughs> <laughs> Maria, we, we started speaking about Greece and Canadian and Take everyone into a completely different direction now. <laughs> has to do with my roots because I'm actually German and Greek. So I bring uh, two identities that are perfect to introduce people to Greeks, and I'll get to that in a minute. So, um, Ever since moving to the U.S. from Europe, I've been flabbergasted by a central question, and I want to bring this into something that I've been thinking about a lot since your invitation and since we started talking about uh, today's event. The question that I have is, why do we vilify food, certain food, in America? If it's not fat or butter, it's eggs. If it's not eggs, it's carbs. If it's not carbs, it's sugar. So there is a purely black and white look at certain foods, always shifting, and it has far-reaching consequences for public health and for the environment. I'm very happy that the current New Yorker has a story titled, Is Fat Killing You or Is It Sugar? <laughs> the Washington Post just last week published a piece our messed up relationship with food, it started with water. So all of this was just wonderful as I was thinking about today's event. So a bit about myself. As I mentioned, I'm German and Greek. I was trained as a journalist 
and worked for many years as it, uh, for Germany's largest news agency, DPA, before coming to the U.S. as a night fellow at Stanford in the early 90s. And I have a lifelong, uh, completely, like a completely crazy passion for whole grains, for ancient grains, as we call them sometimes. I've been smitten uh, by them since childhood, and less so for their well-documented health benefits, but really for the rich textures, the subtle flavors, and the colors they bring to our table. Grains, of course, were the staple of ancient civilizations. They nourished the people the world over, across cultures, for millennia. If you know wheat and barley in Europe, spreading from Mesopotamia, millet and rice in Asia, maize or corn in the Americas. Rachel Loudon, the renowned food historian, writes in her splendid book, if you're interested in food, it's, it's, it's titled Cuisine Empire, that only grain-based cuisines supported cities from 1000 BC to the end of the 19th century. So grains are really at the heart of civilization. Obviously, I love grains. I just have to say this. There's something behind it. others have done that as well. At the same time, grains and carbs, of course, fall neatly in the category of vilified foods. The numbers vary. About a third of Americans have cut back gluten, many eliminating carbs, good or bad, altogether, despite well-established research to eat normal grains. And these food trends spread around the world like wildfire, not just to Europe. I'm pretty sure young women in New Delhi, like middle-class India, Brazil, or Mexico, probably also young men, are now shunning carbs or the traditional uh, carbs of their, of, their, of their countries out of uh, fear to become fat or sick. There's a lot of confusion around this, and obviously I can talk many hours, and I've done this for, for, for a long time. But for me, the question is, these shifts in our diets have real consequences for public health and the environment. And I think that's something what I'm you know, looking for, like the Fletcher School, the Friedman School here of nutrition, are well equipped to address and think about. Public health, I'm just gonna make this you know, very briefly now, you know, obviously, like, to write something like this within 25 years, we now have basically overweight and obesity worldwide, according to the WHO, are now linked to more deaths than underweight. I mean, it's just mind-blowing to think about it. And it's, you know, um, it's a problem now, overweight and obesity, in, the, across developing countries, among children, from India to Pakistan, Greek children before the crisis were the fattest in Europe. Now this has changed, right, in 2008. So even the Mediterranean diet that we all love, the Greeks had long forgotten about it. I mean, we can talk about that too. So that's a whole different issue. But, but um, I wrote a piece um, when, when California had the drought for the Washington Post, that Nadine, thank you very much for sharing that. It was titled, Your Brain-Free Diet Isn't Natural good for you or good for the planet. And basically, um, diets such as, you know, there are not enough land or water resources to support grain-free diets, such as paleo, Whole30, or, you know, other regimens which are very popular um, still, <coughs> compared to, to, I'm sure many of you know that also, compared to uh, meat such as beef, grains use much less water to grow, grains are low on the food chain, and so 
for me, my my personal is the, the, the belief that we need a new balance on our plate, where you know the meat portion shrinks. I'm not a um, vegetarian. I love good food, but um, it's used as a flavorful accent. You know, the spirit also that Barbara in the third plane talks about that that we basically add lots of vegetables in good grains, emphasis on good grains to our plate. And to come back to the starting question, studying and better understanding why we need to vilify foods seems so crucial to me right now. How these dubious food claims and obsessions spread around the globe, and what are their consequences, and how to correct that. That's something I want to thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now, uh, who can't, can't make it, can't make it, is a historian who also translates uh, Abbasid cookbooks from the 7th and 8th century to English <coughs> and recipes that have traveled sometimes all the way to from from Baghdad, from when well, originally from Persia, Baghdad. Damascus, Andalusia, Spain, even to Peru, okay. and uh, we have Rad and Suhair who are traveled from Baghdad to the process. And so tell us why you created the, uh, by, by the way, Shahrazad, when we had a Shahrazad menu at the, at the Paris Center, the food lasted 37 minutes. <laughs> it's so it's a very good, very good piece of food. Uh, the, the idea of having the food truck uh, is actually to preserve family recipes that we grew up eating and watching our, uh, watching my mother, watching his aunt, uh, preparing certain recipes. It starts from doing the shopping from the big market, the spice market in Baghdad, called the Shorja. I go with my mother to the, uh, the buy spices and also the, the daily shopping. Uh, the what we wanted to do is to make very authentic recipes and introduce it here because in this area or in even in Europe, Middle Eastern food, when mentioned at Middle Eastern food, it's about falafel and shawarma. And this is not the food that we eat in, you know, when we were little or now at home. We eat totally different uh, uh, diet and different recipes. It goes back to <coughs> mother's great uncle who used to bring the women of the family and read from a Turkish cookbook recipes for them and give them like a task the next day. They cook the same recipe and see which one is best. <laughs> and some of them are very, very difficult recipes, like especially you know, working with the uh, dough and uh, uh, Spreading the dough, so and then that came down to my mother's aunt and mother, and she preserved it. 
about the, in the early 80s, she moved to London, my mother, and we moved to Kuwait. And I had to cook the cook we liked and we loved. So every time I go to London, I have a list of recipes that I want her to make with me. And I started writing in her language. It's not classic Arabic, it's not my language, her language. It's when to lower the heat, how much to put, when it's slightly done. And I kept uh, uh, writing these recipes until three, four years ago, we were very serious about having a, a small restaurant with the encouragement of friends. Say, you know, you cook things that we never tried before, it's all new, and very well balanced, very healthy, and uh, it was very difficult for us to think about a restaurant while we were doing the market that I was working in Iraq with USA. And uh, just to put it together was really a challenge for us. But finally, we, we did it. We bought the truck, we uh, worked on the menu, we worked on the recipes, and I kept looking, you know, if we uh, look for a, a spice, and we do research about this certain spice, the food that my mother cooked changed in time, how it changed. Some influences, like she has the Persian cook, she learned from him. Then we went to Lebanon. She had a, a Lebanese cook. She learned from her. Then we had a Palestinian and friends, you know, Jewish and uh, Christians. So when she went to London, she looked for her Jewish friends, and they started cooking together. And now she she preserved the the Jewish Baghdadi Jewish. Recipes, and we uh, we have like today one of the dishes we brought is from Yemen. So I cannot say it's 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 pure Iraqi. It's family, and it has things from here and there. We definitely after we left Iraq, we learned a lot, like using some spices to enhance the taste. We keep uh, uh, experimenting, but. The food is the same food that we ate when we were little and we cooked at the, uh, at the truck. One of our signature dish is Iraqi red chicken. You've heard about it, but people love it. It's very simple. And one day we said, we're tired, let's stop it. And people went crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so now what we try to do is every now and then introduce one dish. So what we cook today is, is very family recipes. It's the perde pilau, which is a, uh, perde is the, the curtain, pilau is the rice. So it's rice covered with a curtain, filo pastry curtain. And the other one is the tuna salad, uh, which is from Yemen, but we cook it at home. So what we consider family is actually a mixture and uh, a trans, uh, you know, a cultural uh, thing we share with friends and we, every time we have friends, all what we talk about is 
food, where it came from, where we buy the spices from. So that's the story of our pack. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to shift completely. Uh, what is happening now in that part of the world? This is the tragedy. Great food comes from great cities. Okay. It, urbanity developed culinary, you know, cuisine and great food. And look at what's happening to the great cities that have great culinary traditions. Baghdad is destroyed. Mosul, which I had hoped that that is going to be state preserved, because Mosul is famous, especially in the grains area. That's the region for cultivating grains, and their, their, their cuisine is, a lot of it is based on, on grain. Mosul, God knows what, what would be left of Mosul. Okay, Basra's cuisine is totally destroyed with the Indian influences, it's gone because the original Basrawis are gone. Okay. Aleppo, which is famous for its food, is destroyed. Several other of, you know, Hamas and Hamad in, 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 in Syria are gone. Okay. What is happening, what is gonna happen to the base food? You know, the, the base, we're losing that. The populations are all, scattered all over the world, okay? The older generations are dying off. They're not, you know, they're everywhere, okay? So what is gonna happen to the food? Are we gonna end up in another 10 years, you know, with all my respect to Lebanese food, and I'm half Lebanese, okay? <laughs> the, the cuisine of the area is falafel and shawarma, and hummus and, 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 and babanu, because that is, What's spreading now? We're losing the the um, with <clears throat> with losing the population of the urban areas. Okay, we're losing the traditions. Now we've lost these. We're losing it not just because of the war. This trend started about 60 years ago, when development had started happening. You know, let's reference back then. Okay, oil money came in. <coughs> the the rural, rural population started moving to the cities. Can you believe that the, of the six and a half million or seven million population of Baghdad, less than 5% are Baghdadis? When you start having 90% complete change in the population, the, the, the rural migrants come in with their food traditions. It's simpler food. They don't know spices. They don't have bazaars like Shorja and you know these places for selling. So the food is changing. And where are we going with this? I mean, is is there? I, I think that we're trying something very little to try to do at least preserve what we were eating at home and try to introduce it here. Uh, but what is happening there? The younger generation, you know, we are the last generation, our generation, is the last generation who bridged both. We remember the old days. We remember the old food. We remember the old social system. Okay. 
the younger generation afterwards, they, that's gone. They don't have that frame of reference. And my worry is they don't have the taste reference, what the dish should taste like. You know, you, you, know, you eat anything now and you say, oh, this should have been this way. They don't have that. The food is bland, the food is different, and these great cultural traditions are vanishing. That is the, the tragedy to what's happening in that part of the world. Thank you, thank you, Rata. Uh, talking of, of cities, we have a, a project at the Fire Center to, to look at, at Tripoli. Yes. And I, I was there over the, the winter break with Claire Wilson here and Nathan, who's hiding somewhere. But, uh, and the food there still has a lot of character. And very, it's very different. And uh, when you mentioned about that, I found a book in an old bookshop in London, published in 1947, edited by Bediard, uh, under the patronage of the Queen Mother, uh, as a benefit for the Red Cross, for the where they asked every society they would contribute a a, a, a recipe, and you can see the whole diversity of what that is—Kurdish, Indian, Persian, uh, Turkish, Arab—it's uh, it's an amazing diversity. It even has the ubiquitous bechamel. Now, Tari, I left you to the end because you had a great responsibility. Just to follow up Please, on yeah. what you're saying, uh, the, the Red Cross was very close to where we live in uh, Baghdad. And this tradition of asking you know, the, the women and the society to bring their you know, special dishes, at, 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 it was an annual event until 1957. They kept doing it. That I remember. That's why you know, when you said it, yeah. Yeah, we tried to find the book. I, I, yeah. it, it still it still goes on. I mean, Claude has a recipe in the soup for Syria book, which is, you can even find it here. Uh, and it's uh, they, they've asked every, every chef for 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 a soup dish. You 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 have you have one. Mm -hmm. yeah. Claude Yeruda has had one. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff. And has one. And, and uh, when you mentioned ol ol olive oil, uh, when I first arrived in London, there was no olive oil in the supermarket. And we wanted to make it a pudding. And we went to Boots, the chemist, which is like sweet CVS. And they used to sell olive oil BP in five milliliter bottles for, ear for, for softening earwax. And we bought Ten bottles. Before I hand over to to, to Tari, I also had a, had an email from Sami Zubeida, who is who introduced me a very long time ago to this whole field and the whole field of 
good identity and good boundaries, the boundaries between, between uh, olive oil and butter, between vinegar and lemon, between beef and, and, and pork and, and lamb. Uh, uh, the, the, all, all these boundaries are probably more permanent than what we had in the 20th century, which are now even disappearing. But Tare has looked at even more, even further than the, than, than the 20th, or on Mamluk manuscripts and Ottoman manuscripts on, on food and the influence. So give us some of this bigger historical Okay, well, uh, thank you for having me, Nadim, and everyone else. And uh, first, I have to say I'm very jealous because everyone here actually works with actual food. Because I'm the person who approaches food only on the at the theoretical level. So, whereas you work everyone's appetites up by. So I only eat it. I eat it and put everyone to sleep with my scholarly mumbo jumbo. So, so hopefully. Uh, but well, uh, so I um, I wanted to actually try to interrogate the concept of culinary diplomacy uh, from a historical perspective, specifically taking you back to 16th century Damascus. Uh, and it's important to sort of interrogate this idea of culinary diplomacy and the cross-cultural uh, impact of food in an academic way because, you know, food scholarship uh, in general across the disciplines, history, anthropology, sociology, etc., there is, in food scholarship, there is a tendency to sort of romanticize food as, you know, this cross-cultural agent which has the capacity to you know, seamlessly forge bonds between people of different backgrounds and creeds, which is definitely absolutely true, but it does need to be problematized slightly from a historical and academic perspective. And um, I would also suggest that, um, you know, through my own research, that the romanticized kind of approach to food, which is certainly very valid and positive, don't get me wrong, it can sometimes also overlook equally obvious divisions that food and dining practices can create and manifest, both among various cultures and also within cultures. And in particular, my own research uh, on food, which to me is um, not the main focus of my research. Uh, the main focus of my research is happens to be Ottoman intellectual history in the 16th and 17th centuries. But it's, 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 uh, it's a very important, and um, to me, I'm very passionate about it as a side interest. Um, yeah, so, so in the 16th century, and earlier, you, know, you have two authors, early 16th century, in Damascus, Ibn Tulun and Badr al-Din al-Ghazi, who wrote um, treatises on social dining. So specifically, social dining etiquette, do's and don'ts, how to act around the dinner table, uh, what not to do around the dinner table, mostly. Also, very funny anecdotes about uh, people, you know, scratching their hair and then putting their um, fingers in the um, whatever plate. Oh, yeah, well, even worse, maybe soup. 
perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, guests feeding cats when they were not supposed to do that. To do that. Uh, except, you know, uh, hosts complaining about uh, the prices of foodstuffs, etc. Um, but in any case, what is important to me, what stood out to me about reading these treatises from the 16th century, circa 1520-1530, is that what they do is they sort of um, they, I read them as a sort of means through which the intellectual elite of Damascus and other Muslim urban locales could distinguish itself, the urban elites, could distinguish themselves from the rest of society, uh, which included both uh, commoners and also other forms of elites like the military administrative elites, um, while also perpetuating a self-image of superiority among members of that intellectual elite. And now, Ibn Tulun, you know, you know, to go back to the romanticization, Ibn Tulun, one of the two authors, also wrote various books on olive oil, honey, yogurt, olives, um, other things I mentioned here, figs, of course, all of which were are uh, Mediterranean staples, staples of the Mediterranean diet. But his treatise on um, on the etiquette of social dining and his treatise on banqueting culture in, in the region was essentially a book that was dedicated to the khawas, or in other words, elites, in his own articulation. As such, the articulation of social dining etiquette was intrinsically connected to an articulation of a self-identity, a self-image of an elitist faction within society, which did not want to co-mingle with others, to say nothing of um, co-mingling with people of other cultures. Now, of course, you know, again, going back and forth from the, you know, divisiveness versus the romanticization, I will of course, um, say that um, Badreddin al-Ghazi, the other author, does make use of his extensive knowledge as a scholar of hadith or prophetic tradition by, you know, citing a saying attributed to the Prophet Muhammad in which the Prophet of Islam had insisted that there would be no greater divine reward for accepting than, you know, accepting a host's gracious hospitality, which was, which was even preferable to fasting during Ramadan, which is a very revealing um, sort of image about how important social dining was for conviviality purposes, you know, to, to the Prophet himself, according to this, had, to this one hadith, uh, the importance of social dining transcended even one of the five pillars of Islam. Okay? And also another tradition, uh, small t tradition, in, uh, in Islam, related by the other author, Ibn Tulun, indicated that um, although God had actually predetermined how long a person's lifetime would be, sitting around the dinner table, chatting with friends and eating good food, was actually not considered part of a person's lifetime. <laughs> and therefore, and therefore, you know, you wanted to sort of uh, prolong sitting around the table for as long as you possibly could. So that also 
very clearly demonstrates the importance in our culture of um, you know sitting with friends, having good food, conversing, etc. Um, but I do still want to return to uh, the idea of um, I don't know if I can call it divisiveness, but certainly social stratification and division, uh, as articulated through treatises on social dining etiquette, because. This is not something that's necessarily unique to, uh, to our part of the world, uh, not talking about the Mediterranean, but rather you know, the Arab Levant. Uh, and to the best of my knowledge, actually, the production of such manuals on dining etiquette seems to have been peculiar to the Arab Muslim world during this period. But there are other works from the Mediterranean basin um, at the same period or a little earlier that um, includes similar elements. Um, I'm thinking particularly of uh, you know, Castiglione's Book of the Courtier, which is an important Renaissance work, uh, instructing noblemen of how to behave. And it, of course, includes a separate section on, um, on social dining etiquette. And of course, that was also a manual of social practice meant to divide the elites of society from the commoners in Renaissance Italy. Um, even more saliently, there is um, a few decades later a, a work by uh, Giovanni della Casa, uh, Galateo, uh, which actually deals even more extensively with uh, social dining etiquette, because it's uh, it's a book on um, it's a book on polite con conduct in society more generally. And even though Giovanni della Casa does not um, really address this book to elites as Ibn Tulun, Ghazi, and Castiglione had done earlier. Uh, it still is a book that aims, according to um, unanimity of historians, um, to sort of portray Italian culture during uh, an age of Northern European ascendancy as being inherently culturally superior to the rest. So I would like to sort of problematize this of, you know, bringing people together, kumbaya, food, etc. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're almost deprived you from dessert. So I, let, let's open it up for some comments and uh, we will have a you here, but we will continue the conversation downstairs with the food table, which is what we before. And speaking of that, I want to mention something very, very important, which we experienced yesterday, which is the Community Diplomacy Club's Fletcher Feast, which is an amazing enterprise that happens here, which meant there were 400 people involved in having dinner together in different places, all coordinated by the, by the Fletcher Diplomacy Club. So that, that was an amazing experience to, to, be, to be part of. Correction, only about 80 last night, but oh, over yeah. 450 total today. Oh, 
Okay, shall we have some? Hi everybody, uh, my name is Mohanad. I'm I work at the Fire Center. Um, and you know, just to bring you back the, the debate towards uh, like what, what we do here at the Fletcher School, I want to ask a question about uh, globalization in general. If we think of globalization as kind of the breakdown of political, economic, and social barriers between countries, there are kind of two schools of how you think about it. Some people say that globalization is kind of destroying smaller, less imperial cultures. Um, they have no way of competing with, let's say, the, you know, the power of an American corporation. And then there's the other kind of school that says, no, actually, it's giving more opportunity for some of these smaller cultures to actually you know, find places where they can thrive and you know, infuse with, with larger. But then how that brings it back to uh, Sir Ahad's point about uh, what the future of the Middle East looks like from the food scene. And I'm sure every discipline will address this question differently if you ask an, an artist, a, a filmmaker, or a, you know, they, they'll address this question in a kind of different way. But my, my question is, is how do you view this, the, you know, this issue um, of the Middle East and, and, and food and, and kind of the debate of globalization? Will it kind of preserve culture or will it actually destroy culture? Well, I think I think if, if we didn't have these incredible political upheavals, probably the 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 urban cities, the urban areas, and the culture could have coped with this because you would have the continuity in the background. And it will preserve, and most likely a lot of the younger generation will develop interest in this. So they'll take it and document it and, and keep it. What I am shouting about is, that, is we're losing the people, we're losing the base. <coughs> when we lose the base, we're going to lose the, the, the taste reference, and then we'll be truly globalization. As I said, we're going to all eat. Uh, you know, a few dishes and that's it. That is the least important. We'll become one big thing. Luckily, North Africa, preserving Morocco, preserves very well. Okay. But this side of the Middle East, eastern side of the Middle East, with what's happening, I, I'm really scared. We, uh, telling you, in Iraq, we lost three of the greatest cities that, and their culinary traditions. Basra, for, not for war. Basra for migration. The population completely changed and displaced. So we lost that. The, Bas the Basrawi food was very different. Uh, it has a lot of Indian influence because of the trade with India, and it has a lot of East African influences in some dishes. Uh, that is all. Is, you can hardly find any Basrawi family original one in Basra. Baghdad is completely gone, the Jews are gone, and they're great food, okay? A lot of the Christians are gone, okay? And now, I mean, I'll give you a funny story, but it gives you, you know, what's happening. You know Bremer, the, the, the governor of Iraq, the, you know, after the invasion, in his memoirs, in, 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 
he said when he was given this position, um, Ibrahim Jafari, who was the, the head of the governing council, the rotating one, okay, invited him to dinner at his house. We're talking about the diplomacy here. Okay. Guess what was the, 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 the principal dish that they served? It was first and June which is the most important Persian dish, okay? Uh, uh, which is not about Gaelic dish. I mean, there are, yes, the Shia or Baghdad will, will, will cook for Sandur, okay? But not something that, as a head of a state, you present, you know, to someone as that this is our cuisine. He serves him for Sandur. So this is the kind of change that, everything is changing, it's just boiling. And I don't know what is going to set. That sounds more like uh, regionalization, though, than globalization. Uh, such, you know, like uh, McDonald's and Burger King and things like yeah, that. So, so the falafel and shawarma paradigm of uh, Eastern yeah, Mediterranean I mean, cuisine. It, that that could extend to McDonald's and all of that. Yeah. Okay. I but, but, I mean, talking about McDonald's, there is such a thing as a McDonald's index determines how much is a price of a cheap, reasonable meal in every city. And the price of a McDonald's and Mac index differs. And I have noticed, and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm right, that hundreds are the economists, the real economists. Uh, I've noticed that the, the price, that price also determines a lot of meals in the city. So you, you can go, you do, they're, they're, because, because they're competing with it, you can go to an all-you-can-eat Nepalese restaurant for the same price, or another restaurant. So, so the, the, the globalization has a, has a kind of an economic effect on, on competition of, of these big corporations. Uh, yeah. So I kind of want to connect the last question with the idea of social differentiation to the point that, you know, maybe like McDonald's, like these kind of foods that are coming into these cultures, is that sort of a vehicle for maybe people to show that they're elite, like they get access to burgers when the rest of society is eating falafel? Is that at all a concept or what is it doing? Well, I think people in the East eat McDonald's because it's there more social status or something? No, no. Uh, or, or, you know, uh, yeah. no, I don't think so. But it is interesting that um, McDonald's in the rest of the world, certainly in the Middle East, is not, you know, trash food. No, uh, I mean, it's, it may be trash in terms of quality, <laughs> according to most people, but it is not perceived as uh, trashy food in the same way that, you know, uh, falafel, you know, which is overcooked in 20, 30 time refried oil is, uh, which, which costs barely a dollar, you know, as a sandwich. But, and it is, uh, I certainly wouldn't say that uh, eating a Big Mac would be an indication of uh, sort of high social status necessarily, but it is it does seem to be an indication of uh, kind of uh, 
being modern and cosmopolitan, especially as young people. And certainly when I was growing up, you know, in high school, that was the idea. It's like wearing jeans. It took over, you know, the whole world. It also connects up to the question that I earlier asked, right? Like, why are we so fascinated worldwide with what, how Americans, you know, take one food, and I, I mentioned a couple of examples, that, you know, in America they're constantly changing. I mean, where some foods we idolize them, other foods we vilify, like, for some time it's good to drink red wine, then it's maybe good not to drink any wine, and then it goes to coffee, that's really good for you, and now you can actually keep coffee, right? Like it's fine if you drink coffee. And so we go, and the whole world is watching, and not just watching, but really copying it. And I would like to know, why are we doing this? You know, and, and what are the consequences, again, also for traditional diets, right? Like diets for, you know, we use the term health, and you know, I, I talk in both of my cookbooks that I wrote, um, that I like not to connect grains to health because I think they bring so much more than health to our table. But it has profound effects on health if people go to McDonald's or eat, you know, the moment they go into the middle class across, you know, all the developing world, you have that now, you have, you know, so many issues that are related to how food ideas travel. And so that's something that I would, you know, that, that also connects to what you just said. Speaking of McDonald's, how do you explain the resilience of uh, certain markets like uh, uh, the Af uh, most of Sub-Saharan Africa and China to uh, sort of globalization of food? Would you argue that um, this is McDonald's and other companies not seeing a sort of profit there, or is it that these most of the food cultures there are actually very much more ingrained and resilient to outside influences? they are more ingrained. And the problem with the Middle East, it's a crossroad. Keep that in mind. For 5,000 years, it's been a crossroad. Everybody came through there, and everybody put his stamp and his influence on everything, including the food. Yeah. So. And when wealth happens, I mean, that's actually what I have observed, and you know, I'm, I'm not a researcher, but whenever wealth happens, meat-based diets increase. I mean, that is across the world, and I think in Africa, you might just currently have this in major cities. I'm not an Africa expert, so I can't say this, but wherever I traveled, I've seen it. So it would be surprising to me, you know, that this would not be the case actually in, in large cities in Africa already. Only so. one McDonald's in Sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. Uh, there is a similar uh, phenomenon, and I mean, I don't know anything about the economics of North Africa, but there is a similar phenomenon of the sort of a decline of American fast food chains in Beirut, even, uh, to an extent. And that's because the market has really adapted, I think. So So. So what you, what you have now is uh, when McDonald's and Hardee's and uh, Burger King and you know, KFC first moved in, it wasn't really a um, cheap sit-in sort of quick option for the local cuisine. Mm -hmm. Now you have plenty. Uh, plenty and at competitive prices and which offer far better quality food. So people are opting for the local choice because it, it tastes better, uh, sometimes it costs less, and it's their culture, I guess, too.
Yeah, no, I have just a quick observation, uh, which is that uh, there's a sense of conviviality, as was mentioned by many people, in terms of the art of enjoying food. And it's something that is striking. It struck me at one point, uh, of all places, was in Sicily, where I noticed that in a restaurant, every table size was about 20 for 20 people. So it was, uh, that, uh, it was the opposite of the modern phenomenon of like dining alone. Just like here, uh, Putnam at Harvard has a famous book about bowling alone, which is a reflection of the way in which modern life has evolved. And certainly, probably, it, it, it looks like uh, the more we see of this phenomenon of eating alone, uh, or eating at one's desk, or while watching television, or while doing something else, which goes against the whole notion of enjoyment of, uh, of food. But I have a question for Tariq, kind of a strange question, but it's uh, whenever you read histories of uh, dynasties and how dynasties change, very often there are big feasts right before that, where, like, for example, you invite right. people to honor them, and probably in some of the Mamluk tradition, and then you have, again, you make sure that all of the pretenders to the throne are there. And then you kill them all. <laughs> and uh, so, so that's right. And and so it, it's a, it's an interesting take on uh, the whole conviviality of things. That's right. To to show goodwill by inviting uh, a whole clan and being very efficient in changing the the dynasty. But so uh, so. Just a technical question: Was this done through poisoning of people in most cases, or uh, or they would be they would be kind of encircled and killed? And then the other question, this along the same lines, was that it's not a food question. Well, it's related to food. So it's related to the convivial element. But the other question is: uh, Since you've done work on the, the Ottomans, etc., so is the the image of like before a monarch or somebody? Eats food. There's always a taster, oh. and uh, does that have any? Because it's kind of in the, the mythology of uh, the, 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 there's often the sense that very often people were so cautious, and uh, the kind of to, to revert to the question of food and what comes to it, what what comes into it, uh, there might be also the question of would would it be an incentive for the food to be very bland, and then you're not suspicious of some. Oh. Some stuff that comes into it. Well, I don't know. Well, if you if you've been exposed to all of these, uh, 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 certainly ideas. not. Uh, certainly, <laughs> it, would, it would not be uh, you know that kind of uh, the fear of being poisoned would not be necessarily an incentive to you know make food bland. And uh, certainly, uh, I'm sure you know from reading Ottoman era cookbooks uh, that um, you know. Palace, palace. 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 Exactly. <laughs> strangle. Exactly. Uh, well, whenever uh, the Sultan wanted to kill to right. rid of his brothers, it's to strangulation. Yeah, that was going to be my answer. Oh, okay. first question. Of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah, essentially, the, this, this uh, um, practice of fratricide, right. which was practiced in the Ottoman Empire up until the late 16th century and was actually part of Ottoman canon law in contravention of the Sharia, even though they tried to sort of 
make it work with the Sharia by invoking the Quranic uh, principle of al-fitna ashaddu min al-qatr, which is, you know, like strife is, is uh, or rather murder is preferable to civil strife. <laughs> um, this is essentially the, uh, what the Ottomans did. They strangled their brothers. Uh, in some cases, uh, you have the Sultan Selim the first who came into our regions uh, before, uh, I don't think he occupied Iraq, but he... Oh, Salim, yes. Was, I think it was Suleiman. Suleiman, sorry. Suleiman. Oh, Salim's father Salim was the yeah. one who came into Syria and right. Egypt, right. North Africa. He actually killed all of his sons except one, because that was the son he preferred to come to power after him. So that was an efficient way of doing it. Uh, but yeah, it was it was it was humane and it was uh, strangulation and uh, you know, <laughs> well, perhaps sometimes after a good meal. I'm not sure about that, but um, humane, yes. Um, but actually, one interesting thing about uh, Ottoman sultans killing their uh, family members is that many of them, particularly Sultan Suleiman, uh, wrote odes to their brothers articulating their sadness and uh, how, you know, this was done to preserve the state. There is in fact a theory among historians that after the Ottomans stopped the practice of fratricide, which made things, which had uh, back then made things competitive and sort of allowed uh, young pretenders, princes, to sort of uh, practice statecraft at a young age and learn the trade. When they became designated successors with no threat of, uh, of death upon another successor, you know, taking power, some historians say that that actually precipitated Ottoman decline because they, the young successors no longer had to actually learn the basics of statecraft uh, at a young age. That has nothing to do with food. Before I pass on your question, I want to mention that Beatrice is Mexican and originally from Lebanon. And this gives me the opportunity to talk about the food of migrants, which is uh, also a, a topic which can, can, be, can, can be explored, especially in a place like Boston. And uh, I want to give you two anecdotes of, well, I'll combine them all in one. I've, I've experienced uh, talking about food with a Lebanese family in, in Wyoming and on a visit to Oklahoma to uh, Lebanese people. And, uh, and they, they have recipes that have disappeared in Lebanon. They call food sort of. So they're like a museum of, of, of food. So, so in answer to, some, to your question, that maybe some of it is, is preserved in Sao Paulo or in, in, in places like, in, in Oxford, there was a restaurant owned by a Lebanese from Sierra Leone whose aunt came to cook. And she had the most amazing Southern Lebanese food that is almost lost in Beirut because it's been there for several generations. So just to introduce the, the, the subject of <laughs> No, thank you. No, actually, that's a very interesting point. Uh, because when you were saying about it, this like, food disappearing, 
I like immediately actually texted him and I was like, you still have like my grandma's like recipes, right? Because I did learn how to cook Lebanese food before Mexican food. So a lot of what Claude said brought me back to like my childhood and like the part of the identity. But anyway, the comment I was actually going to make originally had to do with that uh, fixation on American culture and also the elite part, which I thought was very interesting because every time I go back to Mexico City now, it feels more and more Americanized. And I've noticed like restaurants like um, Red Lobster or IHOP, which are not necessarily, you know, elite or, yeah, like high-end restaurants here in the US, in Mexico have become like elite restaurants. Like they're expensive and you know, it's like middle, upper class that would go to those because they're American. So it's just very interesting that you brought up the points of that obsession with the U.S. as well as like it replaced how it's like it's an elite thing to go to those places where here in the U.S. it's like you know they're not really. I, I want to to put Sari on this for for, for one reason because because um, I was listening to to because you met you mentioned always and you mentioned the. Diet, which was basically launched in a conference at Harvard in 93 and 94. So, so Boston is part of that history. We are, we are part of that history. And I was listening to some of the uh, interviews of shop owners, like uh, Sahadis in New York. And they were, they, were, they, they were saying that there used to be a small corner shop for the community, and uh, most of their clients were people from the, the region who came to eat, eat their food. And then after the 90s, when the Mediterranean diet, which is exactly what you're saying, um, spread, they started, they started becoming, they started seeing clientele of, of, of huge diversity, and they started adapting their, 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 their shop to what the clientele wanted. Remember, uh, the Mediterranean cuisine that we've been talking about is not really all that unique. There are many other cuisines on the face of this earth today and in the past that, that did the same thing, not as much meat, using, using bases that are, that are uh, vegetables, grains, uh, using a lot of broth, stops, and to, to kind of so, so, um, um, so I think the, the future of the Mediterranean cuisine—it's, it's, you know—it's just a—it's just a—it's uh, uh, just a map. It's just a, a, it's a place to start. It is not a place to, to end. So I mean, it, the, the 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 same healthful uh, pieces of the Mediterranean cuisine can be implemented with any other culture, but more even more important. Creativity. Uh, you talked about hummus, I, and uh, in the in the 90s, as I was traveling with old ways, and one of the uh, one of the people that was a, a a regular guest, and that was that was Paula Wolford, and Paula Wolford was very concerned when start when 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 supermarkets started 
packaging hummus. I said, hummus. She said, somebody better write a recipe about hummus because this is, and, it, and it's really true, you know, you go to any supermarket and now they've got the jalapeno and the college and, uh, you know, and so, so uh, but there's, you know, different different generations are going to interpret. But, but I mean, listen, generations do, do you know, as, as we are concerned about the loss of the tradition, uh, about the changes in, in, in our lifestyle and stuff, but, but you know, uh, 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 studies such as this, you know, they're just going to encourage people to, to, to cook some more and be creative. I mean, it does, it cannot, that, that tradition, the way our grandmothers cook, and believe me, my grandmother was a great cook. Was a great, great cook. My mother was not at all. <laughs> Just for the record, and she's not. Like <laughs> but uh, um, so, so um, I mean, I, I, I do have some concerns about the future of these cuisines. And not only because of war, just because of changes in generations, globalization that is, it's just that now, you know, you can watch food, on, on food stuff on, on TV from all over the world, so. But, 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 it's, but, the, but, the, but the roadmap is what's important. Thank you so much. Before, before I pass for Anna for the last word, I want to make sure that you all know that the biggest credit for organizing this goes to Brooke Fisher, Lauren Gray, and Hannah Weaver. If you had relied on, 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 on me, very much. And the help of the